how would you start Daniel Pink's living obituary? Living obituary. I guess my living obituary would be something like, Daniel Pink died today, moments after he delivered the manuscript for his 38th book. He was 143 years old. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. That means you have 33 books left? Am I right? Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that seems about right. That's a lot. My guest is author Daniel Pink. His TED Talk on the puzzle of motivation is one of the 10 most viewed TED Talks of all time. And as you can tell, Daniel Pink is motivated to write. 143 years. That's a, 143 years is, is that means I got, you know, over, I got 90 plus years to go. So that's like one book every three years. Daniel Pink's books are packed with insights that we can apply in our own lives, professionally and personally. He loves to follow his hunches wherever they lead, especially when the evidence produces a finding that is counterintuitive. I interviewed you about To Sell as Human. I'm going to ask you about that shortly. Right, of course. I went back. I had never read your book, The Whole Mind, Right Brain, Left Brain, and I'm going to want to ask you about that as well. And I had never read Drive, but I've read all those three books now. And so I want to sort of talk about two things with you during the next half hour, 40 minutes, hour, two hours, whatever you have to spare. And I'm going to break it down into podcasting and parenting. And in between that, we'll cover a lot of ground. But I wanted to say that I went online last night. I looked at your TED Talk from 2009. It had like 14 million 616,581 people. It's already, you got 100 more viewers just in like the past hour or two. Okay. Why do you think so many people want to hear your talk, and this is a specific talk on motivation? Yeah. I don't think it has much to do with me. I think it has to do with the substance of the ideas. I wrote this book called Drive partly because I had a hunch about motivation, that the way that people who were doing more creative conceptual work were motivated wasn't the traditional way. Now, it was just a hunch. But when you go back and look at the evidence of 50 years of behavioral science, it says pretty clearly that these, you know, what I like to call if-then rewards, these controlling contingent rewards, if you do this, then you get that. They're pretty effective for simple, short-term kinds of tasks, but they don't work very well at all for more complex creative tasks. And I, I think that one reason that that talk was popular is that it gave people some meat on the bones of their intuition. To sell as human, I know had a big impact. It changed my perspective and a lot of people's perspectives because you found that while only 10% of us have traditional sales jobs, that the rest of us are devoting an increasing amount of our lives, our daily lives to selling. Tell me what you mean by that and just set a baseline for the audience. Sure. Uh, if you look at what people actually do all day on the job, and that's actually a very, that's, that's a difficult thing to do sometimes because... I've always felt that the vocabulary we have to describe what people do all day is lagging what people actually do. And so working with a data analytics company, I put together a, a very large sample of the U.S. workforce. We asked them a bunch of questions, and including a question that went something like this. When you think about your work, how much, what percentage of your work do you spend trying to get someone else to give up something they value for something you can offer? And what we found, what we got was an average, a mean of 41%, so about 40%. So people are spending 40% of their time on the job persuading, convincing, cajoling, influencing, 
something kind of sort of like selling. Now, it's not selling in the traditional sense, as you say, Michael. Uh, there's not money changing hands necessarily. And the denomination is different. We're not, the denomination isn't dollars or, or euros or pounds sterling. The denomination is, is time or effort or attention or energy. You know, it's somebody going to a meeting and pitching an idea. It's a boss trying to get her employees to do something different or do something in a different way. It is somebody inside of an organization trying to get a talented person to come and work on their project rather than some other project. And um, so if you look at what people actually do all day on the job, a big portion of it is something that's kind of sort of like selling. And so inspired by those insights from your book, my letter to you really wrote itself from the insights I got from your book. I wrote to you, Daniel Pink. I said, what am I selling? <laughs> what am I? Tr I said, what am I trying to get others to part with? What are all podcasters trying to get people to part with once the listener has discovered your show and likes it? I am trying to get people to take their phone out of their pocket, yep. touch the Purple Microphone podcast app, yep. touch the search icon in that app, in my case, type in the word WaveMaker, then touch again to subscribe. And it's free, but it requires a lot of touching. How do you get people to give up that much time to, to touch that much? Well, I mean, I think you have a twofold challenge there. First, you have the touching problem and you have the attention problem. I mean, the, the threshold is the, is the touching. And I think the way you do that in the case of podcasts, I don't, I don't think there's a universal formula for all of this. You offer something that is great, that people want to talk about, and I hear about how awesome WaveMaker is from someone I respect. It could be someone whom I follow on Twitter. It could be someone I'm connected to on Facebook or LinkedIn. It could be my neighbor who leans over the fence and says, hey, you got to listen to this thing. Um, so I think that ultimately the way you get people to, I mean, I hate to be glib about it, is the way to get people to touch is to touch them in a sense, if to offer something so compelling that they want to talk about it. So I know you're big on Twitter. I, I'm just going to write that down because that's a Twitter lane thought, and it's not glib. The way you get people to touch is to touch them. And, and you are very big. And, and again, this is why the, your, your work, all your work sort of dovetails at certain key points, right? So, you, you know, you can't push people. They have to find, as you put it, they have to find their own motivation to take the act. And tell me about that. Tell me how you discovered that and what evidence you base that on, even though it, it might feel intuitive to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me, take, let me take one step back on, that, on the issue of influence, persuasion, and selling, because it's important to, like in anything that we do, it's important to understand the landscape, the context in which we do it. You know, selling, the word sales, the word selling has a very bad connotation. Uh, people tend to recoil from it, especially smart, accomplished people. They think of it as something that is sleazy or slimy or duplicitous. And I, I think there's a very good reason for that. And the reason has to do with information. Uh, most of what we know about sales, here we can put a fine point on it and talk about sales, like sales, sales. Uh, most of what we know about sales, sales, comes from a world of information asymmetry. Uh, that means that the seller has more information than the buyer. That's basically defined the sales relationship for a very long time. The seller had a lot more information than the buyer, and what's worse, the buyer didn't have many choices. The buyer didn't have a way to talk back. So the seller was on guard. This is why we have the principle of buyer beware. Buyers were at a huge disadvantage. Well, a funny thing happened in the last eight to 10 years, which is that 
We don't live in that world anymore. Uh, we now live in a world in many markets for many things approaching information parity where buyers and sellers are fairly evenly matched. And so we've gone from this world where buyers have not much information, not many choices and no way to talk back to a world where they got lots of information as much as sellers, lots of choices and all kinds of ways to talk back. That's a different landscape. That's a landscape of what I like to call seller beware. Now the sellers are on notice. And what, in order to be effective in a world of seller beware, you have to draw on a very different uh, repertoire of, of skills. Uh, it's hard to coerce people. It's hard to, it doesn't work to coerce people. It doesn't work to push people. It doesn't work to um, trap people, at least certainly not in the long term. And I, I guess you make a very good point. What, what ultimately works in any kind of persuasion, any kind of influence, is helping people surface, other people surface their own reasons for doing something. In a moment, Daniel Pink, who gets so much right, tells us what he got wrong and how we can all learn from his mistake. What did I get wrong? Let's talk about purpose. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it you're listening to wavemaker conversations a podcast for the insanely curious i'm michael shoulder my guest is the popular insightful author daniel pink so you have written these you know three books that are real behavior changers yeah. and perspective changers have you learned anything since you published your last book, which was about three years ago? Yes. Have you learned anything since then that has changed your perspective and caused you to maybe pursue a different line of inquiry or, or even behave in a different way? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, on every topic that I've written about, you end up learning more about it and getting some things right and getting some things wrong. I mean, pick a book. I mean, pick you know, a whole new mind or drive, I think to a lesser extent to sell as human because it's, it's, it's newer, but take either a whole new mind or drive. Pick your book and I'll tell you what I got wrong and, and where I've changed my mind. Well, tell me because, you know, drive and especially, and maybe we, we can jump right over to parenting now because we're always, I mean, your book had a big influence on me. So I want to know what you got right and what you got wrong. The idea of intrinsic motivation that, you know, it's not the parent who's going to get you motivated to do something. It's something inside you. And yet you have to be exposed to a certain number of things to even discover what motivates you. Right. What did you really nail in Drive? And what are you starting to reconsider about what motivates people and children? There are a lot of different answers to that question, Michael. But uh, so, so one thing is, I thought I did it forcefully, but apparently not forcefully enough. It's frustrating to me. Sometimes people will read Drive or say they've read Drive or something and then say, oh, extrinsic motivators don't work. And that's just fantastically wrong. Extrinsic motivators can be enormously effective for certain kinds of things. They matter significantly. But there's nuance in all of these findings. And the nuance essentially is this, as I said before. There's a certain kind of motivator you know, I call them if-then rewards. As I said before, they're great for simple, short-term algorithmic tasks. Why? Because we love rewards. Human beings love rewards. There you have some neuroscience for it. You know, we love rewards. Rewards get our attention. They get us to focus. So if you want people to focus in a narrow way, just aim for the finish line, look in the short-term fashion, contingent rewards. If you do this, then you get that is enormously effective. 
Um, if you want people to do other kinds of things, that is, things that require more judgment, discernment, creativity, things that have a longer time horizon, if-then rewards just aren't very, very effective. But it's frustrating that, you know, there's, so there's some nuance there, but it's not this kind of Manichaean world where, oh, extrinsic bad, intrinsic good. It doesn't work that way. So, but let's, let's get more deeply to your question. What did I get wrong? Let's talk about purpose. I talk about three core motivators for enduring motivation. And this is built on the work of people like Ed DC and Richard Ryan, Carol Dweck, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and others. When I talked about purpose in the book, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, I left capacity on the table. I define purpose as doing something in the service of something larger than yourself or doing something that leaves a big imprint on the world. When in fact, I left out another dimension of purpose, which is simply making a contribution. And to me, there's a difference between making a difference and making a contribution. Making a difference is, am I doing something that solves the climate crisis that brings down the murder rate that feeds the hungry? But making a contribution is simply, you know, if I didn't show up to work today, would anybody care and something and would something not get done? And there's some incredible research on that kind of what you can think of as purpose with a small p. It's just, you know, really, really important. And, and I missed it. And so now, the, you know, the few times that I go out and talk about this basket of ideas, I talk about it in a different way. Um, there's a great study, for instance, that I love, and I think it's very revealing, uh, out of Harvard Business School about set in a cafeteria of all places. And what these researchers did is they equipped the cafeteria line with iPads that in various instances allowed the customers to see the cooks and the cooks to see the customers. You know, there are four possibilities there. The cooks can see the customers, but not the reverse. The customers can see the cooks, but not the reverse. Both can see each other, neither can see each other. And what they found out is when the cooks could see the customers, the quality of the food improved. That is, you have all these people who are, in, in hosp- like in the hospitality industry, kind of back of the house, who don't interact with people fully. And when, when you allow them to see the purpose of their work, they're not, you know, again, solving the climate crisis. They're making someone an omelet. But when they can see who they're making an omelet for, they do their work better. And that's what I think of as purpose with a small p. And it's enormously important. And I completely whiffed on that in the book. You know what? You didn't completely whiff on it, though, because I remember you talking about a study in which was a people who read x-rays or MRIs. Ah. Is that from you? That, that is. That was actually into cell as human. Good memory, though. Tell us about that one, because that seems like a very, very similar observation. Yeah, great point. Great point. Um, yeah, this is a really fascinating study done out of Israel where uh, of, of radiologists. And what they did is that they... Um, so imagine um, two groups of radiologists. And, you know, r- what radiologists do all day, for those of pe- people who don't know, is, the, is they look at scans of different parts of people's body. But they don't look at it like in the movies where they're holding up an X-ray to a, uh, a light. Basically sit at their computer and look at it on their computer. And so here's a study, two groups of of radiologists. The first group gets the scans as they ordinarily would. The second group gets the scans, and the scans are accompanied by the photograph of the person. So if I'm a radiologist and I'm looking at your femur, I have not only the scan of your femur, but I have a picture of you. And it turned out, not surprisingly, that the radiologists who looked at the scans with the body part and the photograph of the person uh, were more meticulous, they spent more time, et cetera, et cetera. Where it really gets interesting is this. About six months later, they gave the radiologists 
the same set of scans. Now, again, if you're a radiologist and you're looking at femurs and livers and lungs all day, I mean, you know, your lungs and my lungs and your femur and my femur don't look all that different from each other. So six months later, they give the radiologist the same set of scans again, this time, though, without the photograph attached. And there was a dramatic decline in the number of what were called incidental findings. That's when you scan my arm to see whether I broke my arm. It turns out I didn't break my arm, but you discover a cyst there that needs to be checked out. And so their performance dropped. Even though they were looking at the same scans, their performance dropped uh, when the photo wasn't included, even though it was the exact same scans that they had looked at before. And, you know, I think there's a big lesson in there. I think part of the lesson is purpose with a small p. I think the other part of the lesson is um, how much it improves our performance when we you make it personal, when we personalize things. So this is fascinating to me because right now I, I feel like just honing in on this, it's purpose, big P, small P. And so I remember talking to my colleague and friend, Sanjay Gupta, who wrote a book, uh, two, uh, two books, which I consider bookends. One is called Chasing Life. The other is called Cheating Death. And he really explored, you know, sort of the ingredients of great longevity. We started our conversation with you saying you're, you're expecting to live till you're 140 <laughs> something. And I am too. So, so here's, here's the actionable intelligence. They, they went to uh, Sanjay and many geriatric uh, researchers in the geriatric field have gone to the Japanese islands of Hokkaido sure. to find out why there's a greater percentage of centenarians there than anywhere else. And they found three things. The diet, which we would all expect, low fat, all that stuff, not exercise, but movement, yep. constant movement. And then the third thing, and I can't remember the Japanese word for it, but it's purpose with a capital P. Mm -hmm. People who have purpose tend to live longer. Now, let's go to the small P because I just interviewed um, Julie Lithcott-Haynes, former Stanford dean. Have you, have you read her book? I know Julie well. Okay. So you know how to raise an adult. And this is what all of us parents now who are in this area where, where we're becoming very aware that maybe there's some extreme parenting going on or hyper parenting. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yes. Okay. So we have to talk about this. But one of the things that struck me from her book in our conversation, she talked about that small p purpose, making a contribution versus making a difference, even if it seems trivial, and the importance of chores as chores influence that sense of small p purpose. What do you know about chores and how have you incorporated them into your life as a parent? Well, I'll give you something from Drive um, that um, I think is, is really important. And it shows, at some level, some flaws in our thinking. When we think, you know, if you take two good things and combine them, it makes it even better. Uh, so let's give you an example. So let's say, so I think allowances are, are a good thing. I think chores are a good thing. I think paying an allowance in return for doing chores is a really bad thing. Uh, and the reason is this. So let's say I've got a son. I've got a seventh grade son. So let's say I were to pay him for taking out the garbage. And my office here behind my house is the pathway from the back of our house to the garbage cans. So let's say I were to pay him to every time he passed by to take out the garbage. If I were to say to him, I'll give you a buck every time you take out the garbage, I would definitely get the garbage taken out today. I would probably have him looking for garbage to take out today. Probably the same thing tomorrow and the next day. But at a certain point, he's going to get bored of that, and he's going to say, I want a buck and a half for taking out the garbage. I want two bucks for taking out the garbage. Or maybe I say, hey, this experiment is over. I can't pay you for garbage anymore. Then I'm done. Then he's never taken out the garbage. And 
it goes to the reasons that we do things. The reason that we do chores for in our family household, the reason that we help out our family is that we're a family. We love each other. We take care of each other. There are mutual, there's a web of mutual obligation. Uh, once you put a price on something, it takes it out of that world of moral obligation, puts it in the world of economic transactions. There's nothing inherently wrong with making something an economic transaction, but it just plays by a very different set of rules. And so... He could end up negotiating it. He could end up getting bored with it. If I run out of money and can't pay, it's not going to get done. And so I think it's really important to separate what we do for moral obligations and what we do for what we do as economic transactions. And there's a, you know, there's a huge amount of evidence out there. There's a very famous study of uh, daycare centers, which happened to be in Israel again, where they had a problem with parents showing up late to the daycare center. The daycare center closed at four. Parents were late picking up their kids. So they very wisely, very sensibly said, okay, we're not going to charge parents for coming late. Every time you come late, we're going to charge you, you know, five bucks. And what they found is that it had a dramatic effect on parents' behavior because it increased the number of parents who were coming late to pick up their kids. One reason why is that people were coming late, people were coming on time in the first instance because they had a moral obligation. They, if they didn't come late, they would inconvenience a caregiver, not just any caregiver, but the caregiver of their own children. So most people showed up on time. But when you put a price on it, it transported it, as I said, out of that world of moral obligation into the world of economic transactions. So it was like buying a bag of corn chips. You want two bags of corn chips, pay for two bags of corn chips. Chores are another example of that. You, you, paying for things that are moral obligations is generally a very bad idea. So do you and your wife feel that as parents, you have struck the right balance in terms of the chores that you have given your children over the years? I think so. It's interesting you say that because we don't really talk about it explicitly. We don't have a, a set of specific chores that everybody must do. You know, what happens is we say, you know, ask our kid to take out the garbage if we need help taking out the garbage. Our kids know that when we're done eating dinner, everybody clears his or her plate. They know that when it's time to prepare for dinner, somebody has to set the table and bring out the food. And it's just, at some level, how we do business. It's not, at some level, it's hygienic. It's like how you act as a decent human being in the same way that brushing your teeth is hygienic. I don't explicitly say, hmm, I better brush my teeth because each day I must brush my teeth. I say, I brush my teeth because if I don't, I'm going to feel disgusting. Right, but it's about habit formation, right? Because until you get the habit ingrained, it might not feel natural. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, this whole thing about feeling natural, again, you know, jumping around a little, define, I know, you know, the terms right brain and left brain are used all the time, but a lot of times people just need to be reminded of what the real difference is. So just as we're talking about this, give us that summary of the two hemispheres of our brain and, and how each one manifests itself. What is the right side of the brain and what is the left side of the brain? And how can you tell from meeting someone who's a more right brainer and who's a more left brainer? Okay, that is such an important question. I'm so, I'm so glad you asked. So let's get, let's get this. So right brain, left brain is one of those things where there has been so much ridiculous, stupid, unscientific stuff written and said about it, it makes me want to scream. The facts of the matter are this. Our brains are really, really complicated. And as I said before, we have, at this point, basically, a, I think, a very primitive understanding of how they operate. Okay? We human beings use both sides of our brain for everything that we do. But at a broad topographical level, our brains are also 
somewhat efficient in that they've parceled out tasks. There's a division of labor in our brains. The left hemisphere specializes in tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. So think about a, a little kid sounding out a word in English, learning how to read, sounding out a word, moving in a linear fashion, sequential fashion across a set of letters to decode a word. That's what our left brain specializes in, logical, linear, sequential kind of processing. Our right hemisphere specializes in a different set of processes. It specializes in processing things in a simultaneous way rather than a sequential way. So if you look at, you know, it, when you walk down the street and you see a neighbor, uh, you don't read that neighbor's face in the way that you'd read a sentence in a book. You get it all at once, simultaneous processing. You see the face, boom, you got it. Uh, it deals with synthesis rather than analysis, and it specializes in context rather than text. So your right hemisphere is why if I say, if I say, can you give me a cup of coffee? And can you give me a cup of coffee? I'm saying two very different things, your right hemisphere, even though the letters and the words are precisely the same. So, um, and my view, which I explained in this book, A Whole New Mind, is that that division of labor in our brains offers a very convenient metaphor, and I want to underscore that, a metaphor for understanding the context of our times. It used to be that the abilities that were most necessary in the world of work were characteristic of the left hemisphere of the brain. Not necessarily people were explicitly using their left hemisphere only to do those tasks. The tasks were characteristic of what the left hemisphere does. Logical, linear, sequential, SAT, spreadsheet skills. Today, those abilities, and this is also important to underscore, are absolutely necessary. They're urgent, absolutely necessary. You've got to have those SAT spreadsheet skills. But while they're necessary, they're not sufficient. And it's a different set of abilities, abilities now that are characteristic. Remember, it's a metaphor of the right hemisphere of the brain. Artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, those are now the abilities that I think are determining who moves forward and who falls behind. I wince a little bit when we characterize people as left-brained or right-brained because that's just a little bit, it's a little bit off. In general, the more we use our brains, <laughs> the better they become. I mean, it's, it's analogous to a muscle. You don't use your brain, uh, it atrophies. You don't, you don't use your arm muscles, they atrophy. Um, I mean, there's, there's a limit, though. I mean, there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of pseudoscience in some of these kind of brain training games and that sort of thing. But, I mean, I think that one of the reasons, go back to your point on longevity, which I think is a really interesting one. I mean, one of the things that you see also with longevity is people who are living long lives. Why are they doing that? It's, again, it's the diet. It's the exercise and movement. But there's also something about close social relations. When you have close social relations, you're talking to people, you're engaging with people, you're using your brain. Uh, there's at least anecdotal evidence that a lot of people who work till the very end of their life uh, tend to live longer because they're active and they're engaged and they're using their brains. It's not atrophying. So, um, you know, any, I mean, this conversation, I think, strengthens my brain. Uh, I'm hoping that for your listeners who are listening to it, it strengthens their brain because they're engaging, they're thinking. So uh, I'm just, you know, I, I'm skeptical of the claims that doing certain kinds of puzzles will ward off dementia or allow you to live to be 106. Well, and as a matter of fact, I spoke with, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the author, but he wrote uh, 
the brain that changes itself. Norman Doidge. Yes. I spoke to Norman Doidge, who told me that vigorous walking actually does more to create new brain cells and new synapses than any brain exercises. It makes perfect sense. I think that exercise is one of those things that is, I can't find, maybe you can help me figure it out. I can't find anything that's like exercise in the sense that it is just so unbelievably good for you and has so few downsides. Where did you get what you've got that has led to this career as a prolific writer? Because even though you're not cranking out books like James Patterson, you know, you write a lot and you produce a lot. Take me back to your childhood or wherever you think the sort of pivotal developments were that gave you your purpose with a capital P. That's a tough one. And I think that a lot of times people confect those kinds of stories. I happen to think there's a lot more randomness and happenstance in these kinds of things. But if I look at my childhood, I think that the um, uh, the great serendipitous thing that happened in my childhood was that I lived in a town. I, lived, I grew up in central Ohio. I lived in a, in a town, in a city with very good public libraries. And my mother took me to the library, took all of her, her kids to the library from a very early age. And at a certain point, very young, I started going to the library on my own because I lived in a pretty safe community. And so, you know, you could take a 10 minute walk to the library and didn't have to worry about getting mugged. And so when you're eight years old or nine years old or 10 years old, you could take that walk and go to the library. And it also happened, I I grew up uh, in a small town uh, right outside of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Columbus is a slightly bigger city. Columbus itself had a very big main branch of the Columbus Library on Grant Avenue, this huge cavernous, glorious building. I was able to take a bus down to the Columbus Public Library, which is this giant cathedral-like library. And I, I just think that is the serendipity of growing up with access to libraries was more powerful than I realized at the time and um, played a huge, huge role in my development as a human being. Do you remember the first book or books that got you excited about reading? You know, I really don't remember the first. I just remember what the sections looked like and what they smelled like. And as someone who grew up a sports fan, how much I learned about sports from reading, from reading books about baseball. Um, Not only playing baseball, but reading books about baseball. Not only playing basketball, but reading books about basketball. One book that had an influence on me, as weird as it sounds, I haven't thought about this for years and years and years, is um, a book that probably came out in 1970 five or so. And it was a book by a guy named uh, Harry, Lor- Harry Lorraine, I think his name was, it was called The Memory Book. And it was written with a fellow named Jerry Lucas. Now, Jerry Lucas played for the New York Knicks, but more important for someone from Columbus, Ohio, he also played for Ohio State University. And together they wrote this book about memory. And it was all these kinds of tricks that you could use to remember stuff. And I, and, um, and that book was, I, I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. Like, oh my God. Like, and, and I've used that kind of like, for instance, I can memorize numbers very well thanks to that book. And so, you know, a lot of it is, as I, as I said before, I, I just think there's a lot of serendipity. So if my parents had moved to some place that, say, didn't have a great public library system, I think there's a chance I would be a different person. You know, you really make me want to go on a campaign to help save the great small public libraries. Uh, yeah. Here in the District of Columbia, we have, where I live now, we have pretty good public libraries, but they're always fighting budget problems. And I don't see them as 
you know, in a world where middle class people have the internet at home, I don't see them as places that are uh, as widely used or as small d democratic as they used to be. Let me ask you, because you, you seem like a very highly motivated person. You clearly love what you do. Every picture I see of you on the internet, you have a glow, a real smile. You really seem like a happy, fulfilled person. Am I misreading that? Uh, yeah, probably a little bit. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I, I have dual citizenship. I live in Washington, D.C., but I also live in a, sta- a permanent state of mild dissatisfaction. Which I guess is a motivator for you. Yeah. You know, I always feel like I can do, you know, if I write a book, I feel like, crap, I could have gotten it. I could have nailed it. I could have gotten a little bit better. Or, you know, anything that anything that you do, you feel like, okay, the next one's going to be better than the one before. Well, I mean, that, that that's really something to teach your kids, though, that you can do that, you can feel that way. And it's been a, a constant theme throughout our interview that it's not as, there's not the simple dichotomy that people often, you know, divide the world into. No. Whatever the principle. No, I mean, I think that, you know, again, just to defend dichotomies for a moment, I mean, I think they are useful heuristics for helping sort through the world. But I think when you get to the ground truth of how people actually live, things get a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more gray, a little bit more complicated. Well, you talked about how much you learned from those early books and especially the sports section. That's the section you gravitated to. So I'll just, uh, and I, I don't mean to do this as name dropping at all, but I've mentioned a lot of names, but Faye Vincent, the former sure. commissioner of Major League Baseball. I, I, re- I recently had a very long interview with him and he's got a very, very inspiring personal story. Forget the baseball, yeah. but he, he did convey some baseball stories to me and he spoke to a lot of the great Hall of Famers. He said the smartest baseball player he ever spoke to about the game of baseball was Warren Spahn, the Hall of Fame pitcher. And he said, he asked Spahn, who taught you how to pitch? And his answer is the single most brilliant answer on any question I've ever received talking to anybody. And he looked at me as if I had to be the dumbest person he'd ever talked to about baseball. And in sort of a a patronizing way, he said to me, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. And the light went off and I thought, of course. And who teaches doctors how to be doctors but patients? Who teaches lawyers how to be lawyers but clients? Who teaches anybody anything? You do it by learning from your your experiences. And he learned how to pitch from hitters. That was the only answer possible. It is the single most brilliant answer. I love that. Isn't it great? I want that story. Well, here's the thing. And I thought about that. And then, and Faye Vincent. I love that. I love it too. And I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I walk around with that because it's like, what better lesson is there in life? And yet, I said, and then I started asking about my own purpose. And, you know, what is this wave maker conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious? What I'm looking to do is speak to people like you. People aren't getting experience from it. They're getting other people's experiences, which do teach them something. So as great as Warren Spahn's answer was, and Faye Vincent was so enthralled with it, he thought it was the single most brilliant answer he had on everything. What teaches you more than anything except, you know, than experience? But we also need to know other people's experiences in order to live a fuller life. True? Uh, sure, I think so. I mean, I think that's the whole point of literature. I think it's the whole point of film. I think it's the whole point of having other conversations that we put ourselves in someone else's shoes. We put ourselves 
in someone else's position, and we try to we try to learn for them. If we had, a, if we could learn only from our own experiences, imagine that. Imagine if you could learn only from your own experiences. What a narrow window on the world that would be. How impoverished that would be. Uh, we want to learn from other people's experiences too. Thank you, Daniel Pink. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for joining me on WaveMaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Are you going to touch the screen four times and, and subscribe to WaveMaker Conversations? I am now, definitely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, Michael. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to WaveMaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash WaveMaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.